Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Monday, April 8th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hardy. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So this is our monthly up-to-date episode. So, sure, what caught your eye this week? I wanted to talk about neurons. And you're a neuroscientist. I imagine you're interested in neurons. Wait a minute. That's my beat. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> we're, we're changing hats this week. Uh, I, have a, I have a question that I, I think there's an answer to. Okay. Let's, let's try it. Do adults make new neurons? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say yes, but acknowledging the fact that in the last 10 years, there have been two, at least, papers that have called this whole thing into question. Uh, so what what evidence do you bring to this question? Well, before we get into this, I think we should back up and say that... Um, this has been an area that has been studied extensively for the last decade, probably multiple decades at this point. Oh, since um, the fifties. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's this idea of, of uh, through adolescence, your brain is developing and neurons are, are uh, developing along with that brain development. Uh, and as we study neurodegeneration, it's become much more of an interest to understand the life cycle of neurons. Uh, and especially in the context of, well, after adolescence, do neurons keep growing? Because that would probably give us a hint as to why they're dying or their rates of growth um, in these neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Okay, so this is but wait, well wait, studied. let's back up though and say, are they growing or are they being born? Right. So those are two separate questions. You can imagine a neuron growing more connections, right? Dendritic spines or axon terminals, etc., which are parts of the neuron. But that doesn't mean that you have the ability to grow new neurons, right? Where new neurons are born, sort of from stem cells. Um, so I think that those are those are two separate things. And, and I will say that you know it goes even further back before adolescence. So you know in the first year of life your brain triples in size. And then after that, it only about increases by about 20%. And most of that is not in the growth of new neurons. It's in, you know, actually the pruning of unused neurons. We actually lose a lot of neurons, even in those first few years of life. 
uh, and in developing more synaptic connections between neurons. So in adolescence, you're actually getting this big push towards wiring up a lot of your cells, especially in the prefrontal cortex, where, you know, they're getting wrapped in a myelin sheet. This is kind of like a fatty insulator that um, makes the electrical conduction happen more effectively or more efficiently. But anyway, yes, this is this question of do we actually grow new neurons? And sorry to hijack the thread here for a minute, but, <laughs> um, you know, it's like the, 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 the idea of why we wouldn't want new neurons is like, you know, there are other organs that you have, like your skin, for example, where every cell is created equal, right? So, you know, whether I lose one skin cell and another one grows in, it doesn't really matter. And, and in fact, about every seven years, they say, um, the cells in your, in your skin completely regenerate. But you don't want that in your brain because your brain contains experiences from the past. So you don't want to you don't want all the cells in your brain to turn over every seven years. Otherwise, you'd never learn a thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. All those like cherished memories you have, those are gone now. <laughs> yeah, ex- but you have exactly. new neurons, at least. Yeah, well, the new neurons are babies and they don't know anything, right? So so that we don't want that. In fact, that's why we have what's called a blood-brain barrier, uh, which is also a misunderstood concept often. People think, well, there's like a physical barrier between, you know, the somewhere in the neck between like the brain and the rest of the body. That's not true. The blood-brain barrier is actually the fact that blood cells in your brain are more tightly packed than they are in the rest of your body. So in the rest of your body, there's room between blood cells for nutrients to cross from the blood, you know, into other cells and other tissues. In your brain, you don't want that because if you allow anything to get into your brain cells, some of those things might be toxic, like a virus or, you know, bacteria. And if you have an infection, the way it works in the rest of your body is that you've got these killer cells that go and and one of the things that they do is, you know, <laughs> whack a bunch of cells, right? They like kill the cells that are invaded. And you don't want that to happen in your brain, of course, for the same reason. Uh, you don't want to lose those precious memories of your grandmother just because you got a cold. And that's why you should be skeptical of any supplement that's talking about nutrition for your brain. That's right, um, because if it's a large molecule, it's not going to cross that tight barrier between blood cells. And you're right. We we are the distinction's important. We're not talking about growth um, in terms of connections between neurons here. This this story is really about cell birth uh, and the rates of cell birth. And as you had mentioned, this is a area that's been explored, and we don't have many conclusions. A number of big studies over the last 20 years started to indicate that adult humans can produce hundreds of new neurons per day, uh, but they've always been sort of controversial studies, whether uh, they've been done in small samples or the techniques they've been used. Uh, well, late last year, there was a study that came out in Nature um, that was led by Paul Franklin, uh, who's a neuroscientist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, that had done a multi-year uh, study looking for neurogenesis, this idea of, of cell birth. And he particularly looked in the hippocampus. And what they actually did was they injected cancer patients that, that had recently disease, uh, uh, passed uh, with this uh, chemical bromodeoxyuridine to essentially see if they could chemically label cells in the hippocampus as they were dividing to see if there were new neurons forming. And the analysis um, of that brain tissue, they actually injected this while the patients were still alive, but these were terminal patients, so they they passed uh, soon thereafter. They didn't find uh, cases that they were seeing new neurons develop. 
other studies indicated that um, that based off the age of the dentate gyrus. You want to talk about the dentate gyrus for a second? Yeah, so that's actually a layer of cells in the hippocampus. And and why this is significant is because the hippocampus is responsible for forming new long-term memories, right? So if any place in the brain is going to be a candidate for new neuronal birth, it would be the hippocampus because this is where you form new memories. So, so you know, it doesn't necessarily have to affect the old ones. You know, here, you, you know, if, you, if you're trying to learn something new, um, especially what we think of as conscious long-term memory, like facts and events, uh, you know, you could see why new neurons would be helpful. Um, so the dentate is one of these layers. And interestingly enough, it's a layer in which the cells really make local connections. So they don't have wide-reaching connections to other parts of the brain. So once again, that seems like a good candidate point uh, for new neuronal growth. And, and in fact, we see neurogenesis in the dentate gyrus in rodents, you know, which are very much like human beings. Yeah, so there are some studies that indicate that humans, uh, in this analysis, the dentate gyrus could replace up to around 700 neurons. It declines with age, um, which is which would be a, a tremendous finding. But a number of scientists were skeptical. Well, um, there is a new study that came out uh, just uh, last week that in that looked at this idea of of some of these studies that have been done that have shown no. Uh, new cell birth, no new neuronal birth. And what they looked at is the techniques by which they actually identified this and tried to look at it in a different way. Uh, so one thing they looked for was uh, something called the DCX protein with a double cortin uh, protein, which many scientists consider a marker for immature neurons. And what they um, uh, found is that some previous analysis had used uh, a fixative, paraformaldehyde, uh, to maintain uh, brain samples. It's a way of preserving the tissue. But in paraformaldehyde, that DCX protein breaks down very quickly. And so they looked at brains from brain banks around the world uh, of patients ranging from the ages of 43 to 87, and they found tens of thousands of DCX positive cells in the dentate gyrus, which is a scale beyond we haven't seen before. Now, a lot of, uh, well, I should say that the younger patients in the sample, and these are all deceased patients, uh, so the one closer to 43 had 30% uh, more new, new neuron birth, more DCX uh, proteins, uh, than some of the older patients that were uh, up to the age of 87, what, meaning that the pace of neurogenesis, if this uh, finding holds, declines rapidly with age um, or, or declines at least steadily with age. What is sort of interesting is this brought up a huge amount of debate because there's a ton of scientists that uh, profess uh, skepticality, uh, uh, were skeptical of this result, uh, essentially saying that DCX is a protein that every neuron generates. Uh, and though even though it's a sign of immature cells, that what this paper might be finding is just DCX that is being secreted by all of the other uh, neurons at the same time. So it's not a sign of new neuronal growth. Um, the whole reason I brought up this series of studies is it's rare in um, science these days that we can kind of find studies coming out that point to you know, deeply different conclusions. Uh, and it's sort of exciting to me to cover uh, a piece of science where there's kind of the emoji shrug 
uh, of answers <laughs> right now because that's kind of where we are. Like both sides of this debate uh, seem to be um, seem to have really valid evidence behind them. Uh, but it's sort of a critical issue to figure out if we're going to make certain advancements against uh, potential advancements against neurodegenerative disease. It's true. That, I mean, there's so many implications of of this research. I mean, there, there's even findings that, you know, people who um, exercise more cardiovascularly uh, seem to have sort of seem to have seem seem there's some indication they might have a higher rate of neurogenesis um, by some of these measures and and that maps on to you know the way that you initiate neurogenesis in, in rodents is by giving them a running wheel <laughs> um, but if you don't then give them an enriched environment in which they can learn a new skill those new cells don't get incorporated into their brains and so it's this idea too it, you know if we do grow new neurons in adulthood and we don't sort of challenge our brains then that might be one reason why those new neurons don't get you know, incorporated. And so we see cognitive decline. So, you know, there is potential uh, uh, for a lot of positive um, sort of ways in which this information could be used to help mitigate against cognitive decline with age or even neurodegeneration itself. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it, how this process happens in human beings has been really difficult to study. You know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, this this method of injecting a tracer, you know, that comes from uh, an idea that was one of the first indications that we do grow new neurons, which is that we found that um, postmortem brains of people who lived around Chernobyl were actually uh, had neurons in their brains that were labeled with the kind of radioactive isotopes that must have come from the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. So, I mean, those cells must have been born. Um, that was the theory, you know, after the the uh, the disaster, because there were other cells that didn't have didn't contain those labels. It's not like all cells had that label. But anyway, so so yeah, I mean, I think that this is a, an example of how it's a, it's a difficult technical problem. Um, there are really excellent researchers trying to tackle it. It has huge importance in terms of the way that we approach and treat neurodegenerative diseases and even healthy aging. Uh, and yet we can't come up with a method uh, that seems to be foolproof. And, you know, so, yeah, de I, definitely I emoji the, hand shrug. <laughs> I, I love the debates, too, because some of them are... Um have have some really different hypotheses attached to them. Like some people believe that um, that these new quote unquote neurons that that are being found have been in the have actually been present for a long time. And mm -hmm. so you're not actually finding cell birth. You're finding neurons that were present but hadn't forged any connections yet. And then others, you know, believe that this is true cell birth. Uh, and it actually points to something uh, I think even more fundamental is like our ability to actually probe at this scale uh, an image, uh, the idea of of cells being born, particularly in in the brain, is is still really challenging. We can't just stick somebody in an MRI and have the kind of resolution we need uh, to understand uh, what's happening at these basic levels. So there's also a technical challenge on top of of the the research questions here that I think is, is sort of fascinating. I want to end with a quote, which I thought was sort of fascinating. It came from Heather Cameron, uh, who works at the NIH. Um, uh, she's a neuroscientist there, and she's deeply persuaded by this. But uh, her quote in, in a uh, Science News article uh, says, uh, quote, will this settle the debate? I'm not sure. Should it? Yes. End quote. So she like that just I I love that quote because it gives you uh, a picture of how strongly people feel uh, on either side of the debate. Absolutely. 
So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my own favorite paper from this week, which is about how artificial intelligence might be able to predict our premature deaths. Magellan TV is a new type of documentary streaming provider determined to bring you the finest documentaries from around the globe. It's built by documentary filmmakers and new programs are added on a weekly basis. They offer documentary movies, series, and exclusive playlists across a wide variety of genres like science, technology, history, space, and nature. From computers and the rise of artificial intelligence to the basic laws of chemistry, physics, and biology, viewers can explore the impressive advances of science and technology. Watch anytime, anywhere on your television, laptop, or mobile device. Enjoy a wide selection of programs available in 4K without additional cost and stream documentaries without interruptions. Magellan has an extensive collection of science films. I loved uh, From the Earth to the Universe, which is a space epic that takes you from the edge of Earth all the way out to the depths of space. Or the Jupiter Enigma, which uh, chronicles the launch of some of our probes to Jupiter to try to understand the mysteries of that planet from its weather patterns to uh, just its formation. So start your exclusive two-month free trial today at MagellanTV.com slash inquiringminds. That's MagellanTV.com slash inquiringminds. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential and it's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you are not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash minds. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash minds. Inquiring Minds is supported by Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, a weekly podcast that explores why everything you learned in Econ 101 was wrong and why if we don't get economics right, the pitchforks are coming. Every week on Pitchfork Economics, zillionaire investor Nick Hanauer is joined by some of the world's most original economic thinkers in a convention-busting exploration of who gets what and why in the American economy. Pitchfork Economics explains why a $15 minimum wage is actually good for business, why taxing the rich spurs economic growth, and why a thriving middle class is the primary cause of prosperity. Senator Cory Booker explains why curbing corporate greed would actually be good for corporations and the economy. Historian Yuval Harari explains how those in power use storytelling to shrink your paycheck. And economist Stephanie Kelton scolds Democrats for worrying too much about how we're going to pay for things and not enough about what we need to do. If you want to learn how to make the economy work for all Americans and not just the wealthy few, Subscribe to Pitchfork Economics at pitchforkeconomics.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Premature death? Is that what you said? I don't like that <laughs> phrase. Well, you know, some of us are going to die prematurely. And the question is, which one of us is it going to be? Hopefully not you or me. <laughs> um, but that's something that, you know, Lots of people would like to know, uh, not just the insurance companies, but also in terms of, you know, sort of predicting uh, where costs are going to be needed. And, and you know, 
I don't know. I think I'd like to know when I'm going to die. Maybe. I'm not sure. Would you? Uh, definitely not. <laughs> it takes out the mystery of life. I guess so. I guess so. And you don't want to walk around thinking that it's going to, you know, knowing exactly when it's going to happen. But I wanted to talk about this plus one paper that just came out uh, last week where they actually use machine learning, um, artificial intelligence to predict uh, premature death. And so they they used as their kind of um, population this uh, cohort of over 500,000 participants in the UK biobank. Uh, they were aged between 40 and 69 uh, years old, and um, they were followed up until 2016. So, you know, from the biobank, we know who died <laughs> and when and and presumably from what. Uh, they used a machine learning algorithm called Random Forest, uh, and then a sort of another deep learning network-based um, model. And they ran a whole bunch of these against what is the kind of control uh, which is just a kind of Cox rege- regression model where you take age and gender and, you know, you use that to predict premature death. So, you know, using gender, for example, we know that um, men are more likely to die than women. Um, the older you are, the more likely you are to die. And it turns out that, you know, using this random forest model, they were able, and actually the deep learning models, they both actually became, uh, they predicted death uh, on the basis of vascular causes and even non-vascular causes pretty significantly. So um, like two to 10% better uh, than just the simple age and gender Cox model. So essentially what that comes down to is that they were able to predict who would die about 75% of the time and who would remain alive about 77% of the time um, because, you know, there's those two outcomes. Um, And, you know, it, it seems that this is more effective than just the standard model that physicians, especially cardiologists, would use to sort of predict the prognosis of their patients. Um, so, I mean, it's still not 100%, but 77% is that's a pretty good odds. That is a lot. <laughs> it does seem like a lot. Um, and, you know, I think this is sort of, you know, a first step towards an approach where we could use machine learning uh, algorithms to sort of help uh, sort of figure out treatment potentials or, or kind of make decisions like that um, with a little bit more information. You know, there, there are kinds of dis- dis- um, decisions that we have to make. Like if you're 65 and you are diagnosed with a kind of cancer, you know, how aggressive should we be treating it? Are you, you know, could you still potentially live another 30 years um, or are you actually more likely to die in the next three years? And, you know, how do you want to spend those three years? These are these are, I think, are important questions that, you know, we all have to face at some point. And, you know, you don't want to spend potentially the last three years of life uh, fighting an aggressive cancer if you're about to die of a heart attack. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I think it's just kind of an interesting um, way of, of, of relying on artificial intelligence to ultimately have some real world consequences about some questions that are deeply personal in terms of, you know, how you would uh, treat your own health. So I totally hear you. It's totally interesting. At the same time, 77% is still means tw- the other 23%. <laughs> yeah, so wrong. like how often are people <laughs> relying on this will rely upon this as being quote unquote right? Because you like the choices you make based off of this information can have massive ramifications. And you might be making choices based off of probability, which means there's a prob- 
there's a probability that nothing will happen, right? So I'm just I'm so curious. And I only bring this up because I just finished reading John Carew's book on uh the decline of Theranos. Hmm. And it was mm-hmm. a similar thing where people were getting a blood test, which may or may not have been giving them the right results and making choices on it. And how do we evaluate what happened after that based on this? That it gives me a little bit of pause. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. And I but I do think that we make these kinds of decisions all the time on the basis of a doctor's recommendation, right? And here is a way of becoming slightly more accurate than what the doctor uses. Uh, so I think that in that sense, like if something that we are already doing, uh, and this is just making, you know, giving us information that is more accurate, seemingly. But, you know, there is I'm showing my human of- bias here, I think, <laughs> because I think I'm okay with that information coming from a doctor. I'm uncomfortable huh. when it comes from a computer. Even if that computer is right 10% more of the time. So I want to, my rational brain wants to say, <laughs> like, agree with you. But, you know, like, these are our big moments. And for some reason, it feels more comforting for that information to come from a human. All right. Well, I, I know what direction you're going in terms of <laughs> you know, incorporating AI in your life. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how we're going to use this information just yet, but it seems intriguing uh, to think about how this might you know shape medicine in the future. But in talk, but talking about shaping in the present, although I think maybe this is something that's more a little bit further out in the future than than some of us might like. Um, have you ever thought about getting a nose job? No, I'm not. <laughs> no. Uh if you were going to get a nose job, what would be the thing that would stop you from getting the nose job? Uh I guess first cost um <laughs> two why did, why am I getting a nose job? <laughs> Is it society's pressures that seems wrong? Uh no, I would say cost and just the risk of surgery. Yeah, like the pain, pain of surgery, yeah. right? And the long recovery time and the scarring and the potential botched surgery. You know, we've all seen examples of plastic surgery not gone well. Well, what if instead of actually having to cut your skin open, you could shape your nose using a different method that's less invasive, maybe even somewhat non-invasive? Like So, like getting punched in the face? What are we talking about here? <laughs> That seems invasive to me. But like, you know, like if you have some kind of plastic toy and you need to reshape it, like what do you do? You kind of warm up the plastic a little bit and then you bend it the way you would want it to be. Well, you can it turns do that out with that bone? you can do that with cartilage. With oh, cartilage. Okay. Uh, because if you think about cartilage, uh, it is like essentially, you know, the best uh, kind of description that I've seen is this idea of like, it's a bunch of strands of spaghetti that are tied together with threads. And some of the spaghetti can be harder, less malleable, and some of it can be more malleable. And so what if you could make it more malleable temporarily? So that's exactly what this group of scientists did. This is actually research that was presented this week at the American Chemical Society. And basically what they used is they used current uh, to, you know, exposed collagen um, to current. And as a result, they were able to essentially have the same kind of effect of warming it up without actually warming it up. Um, so you essentially convert um, the tissue in t- converting the water into oxygen and hydrogen um, ions or proteins. And so essentially you change the charge of the, 
of the ions or the of the of the tissue and you make the cartilage more malleable and then when it's more malleable you can mold it into whatever shape you want so in this case they tested the method on a rabbit who had um upright ears and what they did is they molded one ear so it was like bent over like a floppy ear super cute uh and then afterwards they would have that ear would have just sprung right back up but by inserting these little electrodes and and creating this current and then you know holding the mold in place um they briefly softened the cartilage and didn't damage it and then the bunny had a floppy ear okay i'm mildly <laughs> horrified for with <laughs> For everyone else listening to this right now, um, I think as we should all be. Uh, so I'm going to put that aside uh, and talk about the tech. What sort of is amazing to me is they can do this without damaging the cartilage. But then there's also all the associated tissue surrounding that Uh how, how does it not damage any of the skin cells? Because it's, so yeah, it, it's, it causes no scarring and no pain. <laughs> apparently, um, because you don't actually have to cut through the skin. You don't have to stick the pieces back together. Um, so there's no scar tissue that forms. Uh, so yeah, you're, I mean, you know, uh, you know, I guess you can think about it as like, if you kind of break your nose and then after it resets, it doesn't hurt anymore, <laughs> but like, don't actually break it. Just do the resetting part. I don't know. I'm not going to totally <laughs> sign up for this right away. Some parts of this defy some logic, but I have to admit it's sort of an interesting idea from the uh, from the concept of, of reshaping cartilage that it does not have to be in its in its current structure, and there's ways to ni- manipulate the cartilage. I just don't quite buy that there isn't any other associated damage to tissues or or nerves in that area when you apply that kind of current to it. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think that it's going to depend very much on what you do and how you do it. Um, But what I think is kind of cool too, is that, that they're thinking about this application potentially as being useful for repairing tendons uh, or even doing laser eye surgery. So actually reshaping the cornea uh, because if you can temporarily soften it and change its curvature, uh, then, you know, that seems less invasive than, you know, using a laser to cut through it. Oh, yeah. I could totally see that. <laughs> so, <laughs> see, that was a joke. Future, that was a corny joke. Future of, <laughs> future of plastic surgery is bright. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joelle, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Jian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Whatever struggles you are facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. 
And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com slash minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.